Okay. So, um, hello everyone. Today I'm going to, to be talking about the updating approach for primary hyperaldo. So first I will start with a definition, then the prevalence of uh, hyperaldosteronism in both normotensive and hypertensive patients, the side effect of hyperaldo, screening, confirmatory test, lateralization, and hopefully I will have time to talk about the treatment. So first I will, be, I will start with a definition. So really it's very important to think about a primary hyperaldosteronism as a syndrome of inappropriate, non-suppressible, renin-independent aldosterone secretion which results in renal activation of the mineralocorticoid receptor and leading to this vicious cycle of volume expansion, increased blood pressure, increased potassium hydrogen excretion, and also increased cardiovascular disease, which is independent of the blood pressure. And this is mainly due to the extra renal mineralocorticoid receptors that are found in the myocardium and the vascular endothelium. And as we can see here that the majority of cases of PA is due to bilateral idiopathic hyperplasia, accounting for like 60% of cases, followed by an adrenal adenoma, which is around 30% of cases. And then very rare uh, to have primary unilateral adrenal hyperplasia. So the three cardinal pathophysiologic features of PA, which were initially described by Kahn's and colleagues, still hold true, which is suppression of the baseline renin secretion, inability to stimulate renin secretion, and inappropriate and non-suppressible aldosterone production. So it's really very important to highlight that really hypertension and hypokalemia are not fundamental characteristic of PA. Rather, they are just dependent features and manifest only when the disease is more severe and it's more prolonged, uh, where we have intraarterial volume exceeds vascular capacity to maintain blood pressure, or when the distal nephron sodium delivery leading to accelerated sodium potassium exchange exceeds the threshold. So the hallmark of the diagnosis is suppressed renin with inappropriate or dysregulated aldosterone production, where in fact, most of the patients will just have mild hypertension with normal potassium level. Now moving to the prevalence of, hyper, of the PA in both normotensive and hypertensive patients. The problem with, with PA is that it's extremely underrecognized and underdiagnosed, and all the merging evidence suggests that the prevalence is much greater than previously recognized, and that the milder and non-classical form of the renin-independent aldosterone secretion, which eventually impacts cardiovascular risk, may be common. And this is mainly due to insufficient screening and testing, and also due to misinterpretation of aldosterone level where sometimes it's inappropriately excluded where screening aldosterone concentration falls below the traditional thresholds. Because aldosterone is like any other hormone, its production is gonna be pulsatile, it's non-static, leading to wide variation of level between patients with intra-individual variability. And this was clearly established in the study that was done by Yuzamp et al, where they evaluated inter-individual and intra-individual aldosterone variability in screening for aldosterone concentration and ARR, and how this variability could eventually impact case detection. This was done among 51 patients with a confirmed PA who had two or more screening measurement of renin and aldosterone days. So, there is a total of 137 uh, per renin and aldosterone measurement performed on these uh, 51 patients. These black dots uh, uh, represent the aldosterone level for each individual that were taken on multiple occasions. And this gray dots, I'm not sure how um, accurate, how clear it is, but these are the average aldosterone production for each patient. So um, from what we can see here is that there is a tremendous difference of aldosterone between, uh, production between patients, even though they all have confirmed PA, but they still have um, this wide difference in the range of uh, production of aldosterone, where some patients might have higher level of aldosterone, like here, 
compared to other patients. And um, not only that, but there's also a very clear intra-individual aldosterone variability where the same patient might have um, uh, very variable different uh, levels of aldosterone on different days. And actually this difference can be up to four to five times fold up. Uh, where the aldosterone measurement ranged from as low as 5 to as high as 51. So the mean intra-individual variability, which was um, represented as coefficient of variation, uh, was 31% in those who uh, for aldosterone and 45% for ARR. Uh, aldosterone ranged from 4.9 to 51 nanogram per deciliter. 49% of patients had at least one measurement of aldosterone less than 15, and 29% of patients had at least a one-time measurement of aldosterone less than 10. Uh, for ARR, it ranged between 8.2 to 427, and 57% of patients also at least had one measurement of ARR reading less than 30, and 24% of patients had one reading of less than 20. So aldosterone production is, is clearly pulsatile, it's variable, it's commonly employed diagnostic thresholds are arbitrary and can lead to a false negative detection. So a single cross-sectional aldosterone level is not reflective of the physiology. A single high level can be informative. However, a single low level does not exclude the diagnosis. And that's why it's very important to have a recalibration of the diagnostic threshold. So estimating the prevalence is problematic as we don't have international consensus of, of how to define hyperaldo. So there is no single gold standard diagnostic tool. And this study that was um, conducted by Brown et al, uh, who aimed to estimate the unrecognized prevalence of PA. Uh, all the participants completed an oral sodium suppression test, regardless of their aldosterone and renin level, and as a confirmatory diagnostic for PA, and then they quantified the measure, uh, they did 24-hour urine collection to quantify the renin-independent aldosterone production. Um, the, the urinary, uh, the 24-hour urine aldosterone uh, level was done while patients are on high sodium balance with a suppressed renin activity. And a biochemically overt PA was diagnosed when the, when the urine aldosterone was more than 12. And um, it was started with almost 1,800 patients and 691 patients had suppressed renin, so they were eligible for uh, further assessment. And it was done across patients who had normal blood pressure, stage one hypertension, stage two and resistant hypertension. So um, the unadjusted urine excretion rate in the context of high sodium balance and renin suppression, and these, vertic and these vertical bars each represent aldosterone level uh, for each patient. And this dotted line represents the threshold of uh, urinary aldosterone where we consider patient, where it's confirmatory and consider patient to have PA, which is 12. Um, so as we can see, although the categorical diagnostic threshold of 12 is recommended to designate those who have PA, the magnitude of renin-independent aldosterone production was progressively increasing as the blood pressure was getting higher. higher. Um, so the greater the severity of aldosterone uh, production was associated with higher blood pressure. The mean aldosterone for those who were normotensive was 6.5, for stage one was 7.3, for stage two was 14.6, and it, sorry, 14.6 for those who had resistant hypertension. And the average unadjusted prevalence of PA in those who were normotensive was 11.3, and those who had stage one was 15.7, stage two hypertension was 21.6%. And uh, for those who had a treated resistant hypertension, the adjusted prevalence was 22. So the detection of the unrecognized yet biochemically overt PA is not limited to hypertension, but it extends individual with normal blood pressure. This phenotype might be referred to as 
subclinical or mild form and then non-classical because patients don't have severe hypertension with hypokalemia. Multiple studies have shown that it's now associated with increased risk of future hypertension, where the greater the aldosterone level in the context of more suppressed renin, the higher the risk of hypertension. One potential explanation is that these, patients, these healthy normotensive individuals still have no vascular or kidney disease, so they are, their arterial compliance can still handle the excess volume, and the healthy nephron can still excrete the excess sodium. And the prevalence of overt PA in normotensive individuals may range from 6 to 14 percent. Now, the prevalence, and uh, although the explanation of this phenotype is still under investigation, but it's being thought that it's due to accumulation of mutation over the lifespan, leading to increased high aldosterone synthase expression, leading to formation of aldosterone producing cell clusters. Um, however, little is known about the pathogenesis or the risk factor of this development, but what we know is that it's more common with older age. This hypothesis represents a paradigm shift in thinking about PA as an abnormal aldosterone synthase expression, even in morphologically normal adrenal, as opposed to requiring hyperplastic or neoplastic transformation. Um, the prevalence of PA in hypertension, it was thought to be a rare, however, a rare cause of hypertension. However, of course, with time, um, it's being the, the prevalence is increasing, not only in hypokalemic, and that case detection testing can be completed without, especially that PA patients don't need to be hypokalemic, and it can be completed without stopping antihypertensive medication. So the current prevalence is estimated to be around 5 to 10%. Now moving to side effect of hyperaldosteronism. This is a systematic review and meta-analysis that addresses the side effect of PA, where it included 31 studies, a total of 3,800 patients, and median duration of eight years from initial diagnosis of hypertension. So it showed a significant increased risk of stroke with an odds ratio of 2.58, significant increased risk of AFib with an odds ratio of 3.52, also significant increased risk of CAD with an odds ratio of 1.77, significant increased risk of heart failure with an odds ratio of 2.05. There was also increased risk, a significant increased risk of diabetes, of metabolic syndrome, and of left ventricular hypertrophy. Thus, the cardiovascular toxicity in PA extends beyond hypertension, and there's aldosterone-specific toxicity due to presence of the mineralocorticoid receptors in the myocardium and in the vascular endothelium. Now, screening, moving to screening for PA. Using the Pathophysiologic principle and avoidance reliance on a strict diagnostic threshold and treatment. According to the Endocrine Society, um, the guidelines that were that are a little bit old, they are published in 2016. It's recommended to screen for PA in those who have severe hypertension, meaning that they are blood pressure more than 150 over 100 on separate days, or when it's more than 140 over 90 on patients on triple antihypertensive medication, including diuretic, or if it is less than 140 over 90 requiring four medications. Hypertension with spontaneous or diuretic-induced hypokalemia, hypertension with adrenal incendetiloma, hypertension with sleep apnea, and when a patient has positive family history of early onset of hypertension or stroke, or positive family history with primary aldosteronism. However, in this cross-sectional cohort study that aimed in determining the prevalence and the phenotype of PA, um, these patients were referred to the hypertension clinic. It included a total of 1,600 patients, newly diagnosed and uh, already diagnosed, and all the interfering medications were stopped, patients were screened for PA, and uh, then later they were confirmed, uh, the PA was confirmed or excluded by using the AV, IV saline infusion or captopril challenge test, and then subtype differentiation was done using adrenal CT and later adrenal vein sampling. 
So 14% of these patients had a positive screening test. And out of these 14, 5.9% of patients were diagnosed to have PA. However, what was more impressive than the prevalence of the disease was actually the observed distribution of PA. Among patients who had a clear indication to be screened for PA, which means that they were hypertensive and hypokalemic, the prevalence of the disease was quite high. It was 10 to 12%. These patients can be considered to have overt PA, they had severe hypertension and hypokalemia, and they weren't, weren't, which was warranting for screening. However, more surprising was the fact that 4% of patients with untreated blood pressure of between 140 to 160 were also found to have PA. And these patients can be considered to having as unrecognized yet biochemically overt primary aldosteronism. And despite having confirmed diagnosis, these patients generally did not meet the current clinical indication to be screened for this disease. And therefore, in the absence of a systematic research investigation, they would have never been diagnosed as uh, primary aldosteronism. And given all these studies that are showing now higher prevalence of PA in patients who have just have mild hypertension, now it's being suggested to expand the three screening indication to include also the non-classical presentation in order to capture more and milder phenotypes of PA. So it's now being um, suggested to screen those who have hypertension requiring three or more medications, not necessarily to be on diuretic, hypertension with any suppressed phenotype, uh, suppressed renin, any hypertensive patient with a suppressed renin, any patient who have um, lone atrial fibrillation, any patient who just have unexplained uh, hypokalemia regardless of the blood pressure, and any hypertension diagnosed at a young age. So the most widely and accepted yet conservative criteria is that um, using cutoff ARR more than 30 with a serum aldosterone more than 15 and a suppressed renin less than one. Um, however, one, the problem with the low screening and diagnostic is actually the lack of awareness by primary care providers. And many clinicians are intimidated by the recommended screening guidelines and worry about that they have to stop um, certain medications and the complex diagnostic interpretation, which is pretty confusing. So that's why also simplifying diagnostic approaches are necessary. So um, as per the Endocrine Society, Ideally, patients should have unrestricted diet. These, these guidelines also were published in 2016. So patients should be on unrestricted uh, diet, dietary salt intake before testing, and they should be potassium replete. We should also withdraw some medications, in particular the mineralocorticoid antagonist. Um, they should be withdrawn for at least four weeks. Um, taking into account the washout of all interfering antihypertensive medication and uh, the complete cessation of all antihypertensive treatment is usually unnecessary because there are substitute medications that have minimal effect on um, ARR and aldosterone level. Ideally, the samples should be collected in the morning after two hours of being up and after the patient being seated for five to 15 minutes. And we should take uh, into consideration that sometimes aldosterone level is affected by whether, the whether a premenopausal patient is in the luteal phase, timing of the day, certain medications, and how um, the blood sample was withdrawn. Also, we should keep in mind that there are certain factors that might affect renin, which is extreme dietary sodium restriction, ongoing and aggressive diuresis, and use of therapeutic doses of MRA or ENAC inhibitors. So the pitfalls in interpretation of screening method, it's essential to understand that although um, medications used to treat hypertension can potentially cause a false negative results. However, there's no medication that's going to cause a false positive result, as these medications will not suppress renin, but rather they might increase renin. So the new approach is not to advise for medication withdrawal or specific time for testing to just minimize the burden on patient and clinician and to maximize the opportunity to test before it's lost or without a delay. So we can 
test uh, renin and aldosterone while keeping the patient or same medication except for MRA and ENAC. And if the renin is suppressed, the influence of medication is not sufficient to interfere with the diagnostic decision making and aldosterone level can be interpreted. Hence, a medication washout is not needed and subsequent confirmatory tests can be done. However, if renin is not suppressed and there is a high pretest probability of having PA, then a medication washout for at least four weeks should be considered for MRA and ENAC inhibitors with testing repeated following the washout. Calcium channel blockers and alpha blockers, they do not affect diagnostic accuracy. ACE and ARB did not significantly rise renin in um, true PA. Actually, this is the principle behind the captopril challenge test, although occasionally they might lower aldosterone concentration. So washout of these medications is rarely necessary. However, they have potential, um, as we said, increased risk of aldosterone. And ACE and ARB, if the renin is not suppressed, does not exclude the diagnosis of PA. However, suppressed renin is diagnostic. If renin is suppressed or the patient is hypokalemic despite being on MRA, then MRA and then the mineralocorticoid receptors are not blocked and clinician can proceed with a confirmatory test without needing to stop MRA. Uh, although hypokalemia reduces the secretion of aldosterone, it rarely normalizes aldosterone secretion patients with true PA. So these patients are actually hypokalemic because they have excess aldosterone secretion. But it's, being now but it's being recommended by the Endocrine Society to restore the serum's potassium level to a normal before um, diagnostic studies. Also, it's recommended by the Endocrine Society to use a plasma ARR or aldosterone renin ratio to detect possible cases of PA in these patients. And it's very important to report both aldosterone concentration and plasma renin activity. However, ARR has a low sensitivity and a low pre, uh, negative predictive value, and its interpretation and the interpretation of ARR has proven to be confusing due to the wide variation and the lower limit of detection of the renin activity. Thus, it's more practical just to use the absolute values of the aldosterone concentration and the renin activity. And reliance only on ARR rather than individual component can uh, introduce misinterpretation in which when the renin may be very low, which will inflate ARR or not low enough, uh, reducing the ARR due to limitation and the lower limit of assay reporting or certain medication that rise renin. So, and also the numerator, the aldosterone can vary substantially at times and may not be very high. So, this is a simplifying, this is, they are trying now to simplify the approach of uh, screening for plasma, uh, for uh, primary aldosteronism. And the most important and the key uh, thing is that to think about it as the renin, whether the renin is suppressed or no. So if the renin is not suppressed, then less likely if the renin, excuse me. So if the renin is not suppressed, then the patient is less likely to have primary aldosteronism. However, when the renin is suppressed and the aldosterone level is quite high, which is more than 15 nanograms per deciliter, then the patient overtly has uh, primary aldosteronism. And we can, there is no need to do confirmatory tests. We can go directly uh, do the CT abdomen and adrenal vein sampling. Some say that the patient should be also hypokalemic in order not to do the confirmatory test, but the new approach now is that regardless if the patient is hypokalemic or not, whenever the patient has suppressed renin with a very high aldosterone level, then this is a confirmatory for primary aldosteronism and we can go ahead with doing a CT abdomen or uh, and later adrenal vein sampling. However, if the aldosterone is between 5 to 14, 15 nanograms per deciliter, this is still considered to be a positive screening. However, these patients tend to have a milder form of uh, primary aldosteronism. That's why we need to do a more confirmatory test. So after doing a confirmatory test, then we can go ahead with doing a CT abdomen and later uh, adrenal vein sampling if the patient needs. 
However, um, as per the endocrine society, the cutoff for the aldosterone concentration is still more than 20 nanograms per deciliter. Now moving to confirmatory tests. Clinicians should be cautious when administering confirmatory tests requiring oral or IV sodium in patients who already have uncontrolled hypertension on congestive heart failure. And also they should avoid using um, furosemide in subjects who are at increased risk of arrhythmia. Um, oral suppression test maybe is the most uh, widely used test uh, in most of the centers because um, this is a pretty simple test that the patient can be doing while at home. So, uh, but before initiating high sodium diet, it's very important to normalize the serum potassium concentration and to achieve a hypertension control. Uh, simply we ask the patient to consume um, high salt diet more than five grams for like three to four days. And they are given a guidance on uh, the sodium content of different types of food. And if the patient uh, cannot tolerate high sodium diet, we can simply give them sodium chloride tablets. And as I said, it's very important the serum potassium should be measured daily and should be repeated. And then after three to four hours, we ask the pay, uh, three to four days, uh, we do a 24 hour urine collection for sodium, creatinine, and aldosterone. Uh, it's very important for the 24 hour urine sodium excretion to be more than 200 mg in order to make sure that the patient is adequately loaded with sodium. And an aldosterone cutoff of more than 12 is diagnostic or it's a confirmatory for having primary aldosteronism. One simpler way is that we can uh, do an intravenous saline infusion, uh, basically give the patient two liters of NS over four hours uh, while being seated. And of course we have to monitor the heart rate and the blood pressure. And then after the two liters, we check the plasma aldosterone concentration and a value more than 10 indicates the presence of an autonomous aldosterone secretion. Now, Moving to lateralization, uh, which is very important in the diagnosis of primary aldosteronism. So once PA has been established, unilateral adeno uh, producing adenoma or rarely carcinoma must be distinguished from bilateral hyperplasia. In general, uh, aldosterone producing adenoma patients have high, tend to have higher aldosterone secretion more than 25, uh, leading to a more severe hypertension and more profound hypokalemia. And these patients tend to be younger, less than 50 years, than when compared to bilateral adrenal hyperplasia. Uh, bilateral adrenal hyperplasia, however, accounts for more than 60% of cases and generally is a milder disease with less hypersecretion of aldosterone and less hypokalemia. So first we should start by doing a CT scan, which is the gold standard in order to exclude the producing adenoma or adrenal carcinoma. Adenomas are usually small. Um, the median diameter is 1.6, usually between one to two centimeter. They have low Hounsfield unit, less than 10 Hounsfield unit. So they are adenoma um, and fat rich. And they are golden yellow in color when they are resected. Bilateral adrenal gland thickening or micronodular changes suggest adrenal hyperplasia. However, uh, patients with hyperplasia may also have a normally appearing uh, adrenal gland or just incidental non-functioning adrenal nodule. And adrenal carcinoma uh, uh, should be suspected, of course, when we have a big adrenal nodule, more than four centimeters, and a, a high Hounsfield unit. So this algorithm is developed at the Mayo Clinic that uses adrenal CT and uh, adrenal vein sampling. Um, so it's very important to keep in mind that age is a risk factor for non-functioning adrenal incidentalomas. So the reliability of CT in localizing adenoma declines with age. However, if the nodule is typical for producing adenoma, which means that it is single, it's unilateral, it's a small, low Hounsfield unit, it has normal, with a normal morphology of the contralateral adrenal and found in a young uh, patient less than 35 with already severe PA, then this is confirmatory for aldosterone producing adenoma and there's no need to do adrenal vein sampling where we can go directly for surgery. However, more than 95% of patients are older than 35. That's why 
avoiding adrenal vein sampling is not very common, or the ability to avoid adrenal vein sampling is not very common. So um, in this study, in order to determine the proportion of patients who had PA, those who had CT imaging uh, with a unilateral or bilateral abnormality, whether or not it agreed with adrenal vein sampling. So this is a systematic review where it included 38 studies and total of 950 patients. And um, it was found that 37.8% of patients uh, had CT and MRI did not agree with the AVS results. So 139 patients had unilateral abnormality on imaging. However, they had bilateral abnormality on AVS. So if only imaging result had been used to determine lateralization, inappropriate adrenalectomy would have occurred in 14.6%. And also 181 patient had unilateral abnormality on AVS with bilateral abnormality on imaging. So inappropriate exclusion from adrenalectomy would have occurred in 19% of patients and adrenalectomy on the wrong side would have occurred in 3.9% of patients. So really these observations highlight the importance of performing AVS in most patients in order to distinguish between unilateral versus bilateral abnormalities. So now moving to AVS, it's the gold standard, of course, to distinguish between unilateral adenoma and bilateral hyperplasia. Um, it should be done by an experienced interventional radiologist at this technically demanding procedure um, because the right vein is small and sometimes it's difficult to locate. And in most centers, um, like even at AUB, it was only one interventional radiologist who used to do AVS. So if this interventional radiologist is not, is not present, then AVS uh, is, not, uh, is not being done. So most of this, as per protocol, most of the centers suggest to use continuous cosentropin during AVS procedure in order to minimize the stress-induced fluctuating uh, fluctuations in aldosterone secretion, to maximize the adrenal to IVC cortisol gradient and thus confirm su successful sampling, to maximize the secretion of aldosterone from the adenoma. Uh, of course, the approach is through the femoral vein. Uh, here, as we can see, is that the left adrenal vein sample is obtained from the left uh, common nephronic trunk, which is just uh, immediately adjacent to the entrance of the left adrenal vein, whereas the blood from the right adrenal vein is just taken from the orifice. So that's why in order to account uh, for the dilutional effect uh, on the left side, because the common trunk is going to get the blood, trans uh, blood supply from the left adrenal vein and from the inferior phrenic vein. So in order to account for this dilutional effect, uh, we take the cortisol level from both sides and we get the ratio of aldosterone to cortisol. So also cortisol should be taken from the right adrenal vein, from the left adrenal vein, and from the IVC. IVC we take it from IVC to make sure that we're, uh, we are at the IVC. So the first step in confirming successful catheterization is to take cortisol from the adrenal vein IVC. If AVS uh, with cosentropin infusion uh, is being done, then adrenal vein cortisol to IVC should be at least five to one in order, uh, this is to make sure that we are in the IVC. However, if uh, cosentropin infusion is not being used, then the adrenal vein cortisol to IVC, the ratio should be three to one. So once we confirm that we are in the right position, we have the second step is to do lateralization. So as I said, to correct for the dilutional effect of the inferior phrenic vein in the common phrenic trunk, the right and left adrenal vein aldosterone are divided by their respective cortisol level. And these cortisol, um, corrected, uh, these cortisol corrected ratio are used to determine lateralization. So if aldosterone to cortisol on the adenoma side uh, to that of aldosterone cortisol of, on the contralateral side is more than four to one, then this indicates unilateral aldosterone excess if concentropin infusion is used, and if it is more than three to one if it is not used. So ALR less than three to one suggests bilateral hypersecretion. ALR between three to four represents a zone of overlap. Uh, 
the test characteristic of AVS uh, more than four for detection of unilateral aldosterone uh, hypersecretion is of high sensitivity and specificity, 95 and 98.6% respectively. And the complication rate with AVS is less than 2.5%. So it's really low, at, of course, at centers with experienced interventional radiologists. And this includes having symptomatic groin hematoma, adrenal hyperplasia, and dissection. Now, uh, moving to treatment, I still have some time. So, of course, laparoscopic adrenalectomy for patients with unilateral PA and lifelong MRA for patients who have bilateral hypersecretion or those who are unwilling or unable to undergo surgery is the gold standard of treatment. The treatment objective for patients with PA include resolution of hypokalemia and prevention of um, morbidity and mortality associated with hypertension, progressive uh, chronic kidney disease, and further cardiovascular damage. So um, this PASO trial is an intervention, uh, this PASO study is an international cohort to analyze the frequency of remission and to identify the preoperative determinant uh, success outcome for patients who underwent um, adrenalectomy. So it's an international panel that included 31 experts from 28 centers. It included a total of 700 patients. Uh, they assessed six outcome, complete, partial, abscess success of both clinical and biochemical um, uh, recovery from PA. So um, complete clinical success was achieved in 37% of patients with a wide variance. Partial clinical success was achieved in 47% of patients, and complete biochemical success was pretty high. It was seen in 94% of patients. Females tend to have a higher likelihood of complete clinical success with an odds ratio of 2.25, and um, clinical benefit with complete plus partial with an odds ratio of uh, 2.89. Um, younger patients also tend to have higher likelihood of complete clinical success with an odds ratio of 0.95. The finding of this substantial difference between women and men, presumably due to the uh, effect of or vasoprotective role of estrogen before menopause, lessening the likelihood of irreversible vascular damage. And similarly, for older patients, both male and female had higher likelihood of such damage and higher probability of uh, being associated with primary hypertension. So this study developed a standardized international consensus in order to provide an objective framework and nomenclature to determine the clinical and biochemical success of adrenalectomy. Where complete cure means complete resolution of hypertension and cessation of all antihypertensive medications, Partial clinical success means same blood pressure, but with less antihypertensive medications. Biochemical cure means normalization of the potassium and ARR and later suppression of aldosterone on confirmatory test. Partial biochemical success, where the patient continues to have hypokalemia and the lack of aldosterone suppression later on. Um, the outcome assessment should be done first three months post-surgery, and then the final outcome should be assessed at at around one year, with reassessment of outcomes should be done annually. So why this distinction is important? It's very critical and important um, because even when biochemical cure is achieved, most patients will continue to have some degree of hypertension. And this is basically due to the long duration of hypertension and vascular remodeling. So um, in this study, they aim to investigate the risk of incident of cardiovascular events in patients who had PA who were medically treated with MRA compared to patients who just have essential hypertension. It included a total of 600 patients with PA treated with MRA, matched to age matched to almost 41,000 patients with essential hypertension. So. Um, 
Patients with PA treated with MRA had nearly twofold higher unadjusted incidence of cardiovascular events compared to patients with essential hypertension. And the adjusted hazard ratio for the cardiovascular was around 1.9. So uh, patients with PA also had significantly higher risk of death of uh, with a hazard ratio of 1.34 and diabetes. So despite having similar longitudinal blood pressure control to essential hypertension, P8 patients uh, had almost two-fold higher adjusted risk for myocardial infarction, heart failure, hospitalization, or stroke. They also had 93% uh, higher risk of incident atrial fibrillation, 26% higher risk of incident diabetes, and 34% increased risk of mortality. So, Compared with essential hypertension, the excess risk for cardiovascular event and mortality was limited patients with PA whose actually renin activity remained suppressed less than one while being on MRA with an adjusted odds ratio of 2.83. Whereas a patient who, who were treated with higher MRA antagonist and had unsuppressed renin, meaning that it's more than one, had no significant excess risk of cardiovascular diseases. So longitudinal data support that MRA blockade as a valuable and effective therapy and treatment of PA. However, if it's, its efficacy may depend on whether adequate MRA, uh, mineralocorticoid receptor blockade is achieved or not. Despite normalization in blood pressure and potassium, the persistent suppression of renin may serve as a biomarker of suboptimal MR, MR blockage, whereas a rise in renin with MRA therapy may reflect optimal blockage, which uh, consequently corresponds to a lower risk of cardiovascular outcome, death, and atrial fibrillation. I will, I still have uh, some time. So I will talk briefly about each intervention. Of course, a surgery is the gold standard for adrenalectomy. Um, it's advised to have a total adrenalectomy rather than partial adrenalectomy because some patients might have small and multiple adenoma, which is not distinguishable by the surgeon intraoperatively. Hypertension control is improved in all patients and no blood pressure medication is required in 30 to 60% of individual. Preoperative factors that predict some degree of persistent hypertension, um, having more than one first degree relative uh, with hypertension, use more than two antihypertensive medications, older age, increased uh, serum creatinine, and longer duration of hypertension. Uh, prior to surgery, blood pressure should be controlled and hypokalemia should be corrected with potassium supplement and MRA. And, uh, aldosterone, con and the aldosterone concentration should be measured the morning after the operation in order to confirm biochemical cure. Uh, blood pressure post-surgery, in general, the number and dosage of antihypertensive medications can be cut by 50% post-operatively. Any medication that might contribute to hyperkalemia as ACE or ARB should be discontinued um, because patients post-operatively tend to have hyperkalemia because they will have um, uh, suppressed aldosterone uh, production for a while. Um, the proportion of hypertension that was associated with aldosterone um, excess resolves within one to three months after surgery. Um, hyperkalemia post-surgery, there's a risk, as I said, for short-term hypoaldosterone, hypoaldosteronism due to um, contralateral adrenal aldosterone uh, suppression production. Um, following surgery, MRA and potassium supplement should be stopped. Uh, serum potassium should be monitored weekly for four weeks, and high-sodium diet should be followed in order to avoid hyperkalemia. Uh, sometimes we might even need to give a patient fludrocortisone for a short period. Um, renal function after surgery, most patients with long-standing PA have some degree of renal insufficiency that's actually masked by uh, glomerular hyperfiltration associated with aldosterone excess. So approximately 40% of patients with PA will uh, show clinically decrease, um, uh, decrease in the renal function after the surgery or reuse of MRA. 
pharmacological treatment, uh, medical management with MRA and the treatment is the treatment of choice for uh, hyperplasia or uh, glucocorticoid remediable aldosteronism. MRA are not optimal for adenoma, however, they may be used. Uh, we have the spironolactone and the epilorenone. Uh, of course, spironolactone is more effective than epilorenone. Um, so during the first week of treatment, we should of course check potassium and creatinine. Concomitant therapy with salicylate, of course, should be avoided as it decreases the effectiveness of spironolactone. Uh, we should keep in mind that it, it is not selective for MR uh, receptor, so side effects are common as uh, antagonism of androgen receptor. So a dosage of 50 milligrams per day or more may result in painful gynecomastia, erectile dysfunction, decreased libido, and um, Agonist activity at the progesterone receptor may also lead to menstrual irregularities. Um, also, epilorenone uh, is also, of course, um, FDA approved. When comparing epilorenone to spironolactone patients with PA, it was found that spironolactone was superior to epilorenone, uh, but with uh, spironolactone, there is higher risk uh, of having male gynecomastia, higher female mastodyna, and this is because um, epilorenone has 0.1% uh, binding to affinity of androgen and less than 1% uh, binding affinity to progesterone receptor. The maximum FDA approved for hypertension is 100 milligrams per day. However, we should keep in mind that it is 25 to 50% less potent than spironolactone. So in order in order to maintain a normal potassium level, typical doses is between 200 to 300 milligrams per day. And because the, hy uh, the hypertension in patients with hyperplasia is multifactorial and frequently coincides with essential hypertension, most of the time we're going to need to put the patient on second uh, antihypertensive agent. And uh, thiazide are very effective in combination with MRA. And thank you. Thanks, Shahid, for such a detailed talk. This was very helpful. I, I have never actually checked aldo and renin in somebody who had, you know, hypokalemia from thiazide diuretics. That's interesting. I maybe should start doing that. I don't know what my colleagues have been doing, but my guess is that we aren't checking aldo and renin as much as we should be. Yeah. There is now like, they are trying now to push for increasing screening for aldosterone and renin. So they are suggesting like even to screen uh, any patient who has hypokalemia, whether on diuretic or no, to screen for aldosterone and uh, renin, just to, um, to increase the diagnosis of milder forms of uh, primary aldosteronism. So another question is, should we be doing, just giving spironolactone preemptively to everybody and not worrying about testing? Should that be the mainstay management of hypertension as one of the drugs? Yeah, so this is very debatable whether just to give any patient, like any patient suspected to have PA, rather than doing this um, AVS, because in some centers it's not widely available, why not just put the patient on MRA and that's going to solve the problem. But this is not the gold standard of treatment and it's still recommended to do adrenalectomy for patients who have uh, producing adenoma as there is a high risk of complete like um, because with spironolactone or epilorenone we want to make sure that all the MR receptors are adequately blocked otherwise if the renin is still suppressed there is a still persistent increased risk of cardiovascular disease of hypertension and so many things so that's why it's still being um, um, recommended to do adrenalectomy, even if we have the chance to give the patient, just put them on MRA. This is like very um, hot topic. They debated all the time. If I look at the criteria that you showed on a previous slide, that looks like almost all of our patients should be screened. I mean, all of our clinic patients, which I, I'm not, you know, I guess that's not really practical, if feasible. Uh, but yes, uh, it was one of the slides that you showed uh, yeah. earlier on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I guess it's even more controversial when you look at patients that don't even have hypertension. Um, so that makes it even more difficult. Yes. And, 
and then looking at, you know, I, I kind of agree with Lama. If you look at our institution, we really don't get good results as far as uh, uh, adrenal vein sampling. And uh, my experience was better just sending patients to Mayo Clinic where they don't even take our results. They, they do their own testing uh, to start with. And uh, uh, the way they approach this uh, is they get the patient in for testing, for, uh, for hormonal testing. Uh, then the, they do the procedure. If, if, if the, indeed the levels are elevated, they do the procedure next day, the adrenal vein sampling. And the following day, they actually do the surgery. So it's a three, four day type of deal where they do everything in one session. Yeah. Um, the way we used to do it at AUB, because um, most of the times the, the thing that we face a lot is that when the samples are not labeled correctly or if the, or they forget to take cortisol on the right or on the left side. So we used to be the nephrologist or endocrinologist, depending on who uh, the patient is being referred to. We used to attend the procedure with the interventional radiologist uh, just to make sure that everything is being like labeled correctly to make sure that the interventional radiologist is in the IVC, like check the cortisol level. Um, that used to help us in doing appropriate AVS, but it's like time consuming for the nephrologist or endocrinologist because that's gonna take like maybe at least two hours. I'm actually curious that, you know, our colleagues and everybody that's on the call, how many patients they have with the proven uh, uh, hyperaldosteronism, primary hyperaldosteronism, and uh, how, how they were able to get uh, the testing done and uh, just, just overall how many patients we think we have. Because it seems to me that uh, it's a low number and uh, we really don't do this on a regular basis. Yeah, so. I personally send them to the surgeons and they actually end up working with, I think, IR and getting that done, not, not us. But if you look at the results that you get from IR, uh, they are not as useful when compared to the results that you, let's, again, you'll get from Mayo Clinic. Right. And uh, one very important thing is that really one reading of aldosterone and renin doesn't mean like does not exclude the, doesn't exclude the diagnosis. And we should always keep in mind that any suppressed renin is, is not normal. So we should keep in mind that if the renin like was slightly suppressed and the aldosterone was normal, we should keep in mind that we should repeat maybe another time and a third time at the aldosterone level. Um, I was wondering, so um, you, earlier, earlier in the slides, you, were, you had a, a line saying that there was nothing that would cause a false positive. And I think, I mean, I think by definition, since it's a screening test, we should be permissive of some false positives in our threshold, which I think is maybe why, why things are moving towards lower thresholds for confirmatory testing. But I mean, you know, I guess beta blockers suppress renin. Um, and, you know, that's probably most of the way that they're, they're antihypertensive. And so I think one thing that, common, that I think commonly happens when we get negative workups is that patients are on beta blockers and their renin is unmeasurably low. And I don't, I don't think that I'm not, I think I agree with, uh, with what you covered or um, that we should be referring more people uh, for workup. Um, but I do think that it, at least at our stage, I think, you know, we should be cognizant of that to understand why we may be having high, why we might have higher levels of positive screening tests that don't result in uh, a high rate of um, diagnosing PA. And I, I think the uh, other thing I was going to say about the fact that uh, Moni's comment that, you know, almost all of our patients should be referred by those guidelines. I, I maybe I, I don't have the most recent guidelines in my head anymore, but um, I believe it was without a known secondary cause of hypertension was part of the evaluation. So in patients that have advanced CKD and are severely hypertensive, I think a lot of people justified not working those people up because they had another, another secondary cause 
for such severe hypertension. Whereas if patients had mild CKD, but they still had resistant hypertension, then uh, they may not need to be referred. So uh, I don't know if is, it was that in the Endocrine Society guidelines anymore. Yeah. So these are, these, are, these are the guidelines from the Endocrine Society, but they are a little bit old. They are in 2016. And they are like, yeah, the classical indication, severe hypertension, hypokalemia, and adrenal incidentaloma. However, now as like more milder forms of PA being diagnosed, um, they are suggesting to expand. So these are not the guidelines. These are suggestions um, to expand uh, the screening indication for uh, primary in order to catch like more um, more milder forms and like any hypertension on three medications uh, requiring three or more, there's no need like to be on diuretic and any patient with hypertension and suppressed renin, AFib, unexplained hypokalemia and hypertension at a young age. So one thing going back to, um, to like um, whether the test can cause false positive. So false positive, the calcium uh, beta blockers like they don't really cause suppressed renin with high aldosterone. The only thing that might increase the renin and give us a like false negative is gonna be the mineralocorticoid receptor. So that's why in order to simplify things and increase the um, diagnosis and screening for PA, they're suggesting that we don't really need to stop any medication, including initially MRA. Uh, we check renin, we check aldosterone. If renin is already suppressed and aldosterone is already high, then this is a positive screening test because what MRA is going to do is that it's going to increase renin. Uh, but if while on MRA, they don't have a suppressed renin and they are, we are still suspecting PA, then we should consider stopping MRA for four weeks and then repeat it. We should also keep in mind some, that some patients are really uh, re have resistant hypertension, so it's not really easy to control the hypertension and their hypokalemia. So that's why they are now moving uh, or being suggested to move to a, just a simplified way of uh, how to approach PA and to decrease the cutoffs in order to increase um, diagnosis of milder forms. And I think I, uh, one other quick comment is that I really liked the, um, the, de the evidence you showed that just making the diagnosis and starting the medication didn't optimally reduce people's cardiovascular risk. And I think it's a, another reason why we might care about diagnosing primary hyperaldosteronism in patients with mild or no hypertension is that, you know, like SGLT2 inhibitors, there's actually improvement in cardiovascular events that we can obtain, even though our guide, blood pressure in this case, or analogous to A1C aren't substantially reduced by the treatment. So uh, thanks a lot. I really liked your talk. Thank you. Yeah, I agree with um, John. That was really good. I actually, I'm curious what our cardiology colleagues think and whether they ever screen, you know, this is very pertinent. So yeah, yeah. nice job. Well, okay. if you look at the benefits of surgery, only 30-some percent, and uh, if you look at uh, all the false positive and the false negatives and the, and the fact that uh, testing, you know, it's uh, so laborious, uh, uh, I, I, do, I do take the easy way out uh, using a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist, uh, I, I would say that. Also, I would say that on that slide with the recommendation when to screen sleep apnea, Hyperaldosterone is there. It's not a primary hyperaldosterone. It's a secondary hyperaldosterone. So I'm not sure why that. Yeah. Here in the endocrine society. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so have... there's, um, there's this entity where patients with mild primary hyperaldosteronism get substantially worse symptoms and outcomes with concomitant OSA. So I think they might be specifically referencing patients that have coincident PA and OSA is my guess. Because sleep apnea by itself increases aldosterone levels. Right, right. I had a question just about technical, like the references. I mean, it looks like this Vedia, Anand Vedia yeah. is the most majority of like the publications. Did you right. find that? Yeah. Like, reading he, through all the literature? <laughs> he is He is everywhere in primary. He's, he works in Harvard and I think Brigham or Harvard or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. yeah, and they do a lot of collaboration with uh, Mayo. So all, like all the newest um, reviews and um, 
trials, his name is going to be there. Yeah, he's he's been pushing this for for quite a number of years before, and um, he pretty much thinks most people should be screened. Yeah, he, I mean, he really does um, at conferences and stuff. Uh, given the fact that uh, you have normotensive people with high aldosterone and you have hypertensive people that have primary hypoaldosterone with normal low aldosterone, it's 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 even more confusing uh, uh, whom to screen and what tests to believe and uh, how often to screen. Thank you. Shahed. That was a very good. That was a very good uh, talk, Shahed. Thank you. Thank hey. you. Thank you.